This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain, Chapter Twenty. The high hedge hid him from the house now, and so, under the impulse of a deadly fright, he let out all his forces and sped toward a wood in the distance. He never looked back until he had almost gained the shelter of the forest. Then he turned and descried two figures in the distance. That was sufficient. He did not wait to scan them critically, but hurried on and never abated his pace till he was far within the twilight depths of the wood. Then he stopped, being persuaded that he was now tolerably safe. He listened intently, but the stillness was profound and solemn, awful even, and depressing to the spirits. At wide intervals his straining ear did detect sounds, but they were so remote and hollow and mysterious that they seemed not to be real sounds, but only the moaning and complaining ghosts of departed ones. So the sounds were yet more dreary than the silence which they interrupted. It was his purpose in the beginning to stay where he was the rest of the day, but a chill soon invaded his perspiring body and he was at last obliged to resume movement in order to get warm. He struck straight through the forest, hoping to pierce to a road presently, but he was disappointed in this. He travelled on and on, but the further he went, the denser the wood became, apparently. The gloom began to thicken by and by, and the king realized that the night was coming on. It made him shudder to think of spending it in such an uncanny place, so he tried to hurry faster but he only made the less speed, for he could not now see well enough to choose his steps judiciously. Consequently he kept tripping over roots, and tangling himself in vines and briars. And how glad he was when at last he caught the glimmer of a light! He approached it warily, stopping often to look about him and listen. It came from an unglazed window opening in a shabby little hut. He heard a voice now and felt a disposition to run and hide. But he changed his mind at once, for this voice was praying, evidently. He glided to one window of the hut, raised himself on tiptoe, and stole a glance within. The room was small. Its floor was the natural earth, beaten hard by use. In a corner was a bed of rushes and a ragged blanket or two. Near it was a pail, a cup, a basin, and two or three pots and pans. There was a short bench and a three-legged stool. On the hearth the remains of a faggot-fire were smouldering. Before a shrine, which was lighted by a single candle, knelt an aged man, and on an old wooden box at his side lay an open book and a human skull. The man was of large, bony frame. His hair and whiskers were very long and snowy white. He was clothed in a robe of sheepskin, which reached from his neck to his heels. A holy hermit, said the king to himself, now am I indeed fortunate. The hermit rose from his knees. The king knocked. A deep voice responded, Enter, but leave sin behind, for the ground whereon thou shalt stand is holy. The king entered and paused. The hermit turned a pair of gleaming, unrestful eyes upon him, and said, Who? art thou?" "'I am the king,' came the answer, with placid simplicity. 
"'Welcome, King!' cried the hermit, with enthusiasm. Then, bustling about with feverish activity, and constantly saying, "'Welcome! Welcome!' he arranged his bench, seated the king on it, by the hearth, threw some faggots on the fire, and finally fell to pacing the floor with nervous stride. "'Welcome! Many have sought sanctuary here, but they were not worthy, and were turned away. But a king who casts his crown away, and despises the vain splendours of his office, and clothes his body in rags, to devote his life to holiness and mortification of the flesh, he is worthy, he is welcome. Here shall he abide all his days till death come.' The king hastened to interrupt and explain, but the hermit paid no attention to him, did not even hear him apparently, but went right on with his talk, with a raised voice and a growing energy. "'And thou shalt be at peace here. None shall find thou thy refuge to disquiet thee with supplications to return to that empty and foolish life which God hath moved thee to abandon. Thou shalt pray here, thou shalt study the book.' Thou shalt meditate upon the follies and delusions of this world, and upon the sublimities of the world to come. Thou shalt feed upon crusts and herbs, and scourge thy body with whips daily to the purification of thy soul. Thou shalt wear a hair shirt next to thy skin. Thou shalt drink water only, and thou shalt be at peace, yes, wholly at peace. For whoso comes to seek thee shall go his way again baffled. He shall not find thee. He shall not molest thee." The old man, still pacing back and forth, ceased to speak aloud, and began to mutter. The king seized this opportunity to state his case, and he hid it with an eloquence inspired by uneasiness and apprehension. But the hermit went on muttering, and gave no heed, and, still muttering, he approached the king, and said impressively, "'Shh! I will tell you a secret!' He bent down to impart it but checked himself, and assumed a listening attitude. After a moment or two he went on tiptoe to the window-opening, put his head out, and peered around in the gloaming, then came tiptoeing back again, put his face close to the king's, and whispered, "'I am an archangel!' The king started violently, and said to himself, "'Would God I were with the outlaws again! For, lo, now am I the prisoner of a madman!' His apprehensions were heightened, and they showed plainly in his face. In a low, excited voice the hermit continued, "'I see you feel my atmosphere. There's awe in your face. None may be in this atmosphere and not be thus affected, for it is the very atmosphere of heaven. I go thither and return, in the twinkling of an eye. I was made an archangel on this very spot, it is five years ago, by angels sent from heaven to confer that awful dignity. Their presence filled this place with an intolerable brightness, and they knelt to me, King, yes, they knelt to me, for I was greater than they. I have walked in the courts of heaven, and held speech with the patriarchs. Touch my hand, be not afraid, touch it. There, now thou hast touched a hand which has been clasped by Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, for I have walked in the golden courts, I have seen the deity face to face." He paused to give this speech effect. Then his face suddenly changed, and he started to his feet again, saying with angry energy, "'Yes, I am an archangel, a mere archangel, I that might have been Pope!' 
"'It is verily true. I was told it from heaven in a dream, twenty years ago. Ah, yes, I was to be Pope. And I should have been Pope, for heaven had said it. And the king dissolved my religious house, and I, poor obscure unfriended monk, was cast homeless upon the world, robbed of my mighty destiny.' Here he began to mumble again, and beat his forehead in futile rage with his fist now and then articulating a venomous curse, and now and then a pathetic, "'Wherefore I am not but an archangel, I that thought should have been Pope!' So he went on for an hour, whilst the poor little king sat and suffered. Then all at once the old man's frenzy departed, and he became all gentleness. His voice softened. He came down out of his clouds, and fell to prattling along so simply and so humanly that he soon won the king's heart completely. The old devotee moved the boy nearer to the fire and made him comfortable, doctored his small bruises and abrasions with a deft and tender hand, and then set about preparing and cooking a supper, chatting pleasantly all the time, and occasionally stroking the lad's cheek or patting his head in such a gently caressing way that in a little while all the fear and repulsion inspired by the archangel were changed to reverence and affection for the man. This happy state of things continued while the two ate the supper. Then, after a prayer before the shrine, the hermit put the boy to bed, in a small adjoining room, tucking him in as snuggling and lovingly as a mother might, and so, with a parting caress, left him, and sat down by the fire, and began to poke the brands about in an absent and aimless way. Presently he paused then tapped his forehead several times with his fingers, as if trying to recall some thought which had escaped from his mind. Apparently he was unsuccessful. Now he started quickly up and entered his guest's room, and said, "'Thou art king?' "'Yes,' was the response drowsily uttered. "'What king?' "'Of England.' "'Of England? Then Henry is gone?' "'Alack, it is so. I am his son.' A black frown settled down upon the hermit's face, and he clenched his bony hands with a vindictive energy. He stood a few moments, breathing fast and swallowing repeatedly, and then said in a husky voice, "'Dost thou know it was he that turned us out into the world houseless and homeless?' There was no response. The old man bent down, and scanned the boy's reposeful face, and listened to his placid breathing. "'He sleeps. Sleeps soundly.' And the frown vanished away, and gave place to an expression of evil satisfaction. A smile flitted across the dreaming boy's features. The hermit muttered, "'So his heart is happy,' and he turned away. He went stealthily about the place, seeking here and there for something now and then halting to listen, now and then jerking his head around and casting a quick glance toward the bed, and always muttering, always mumbling to himself. At last he found what he seemed to want, a rusty old butcher-knife and a whetstone. Then he crept to his place by the fire, sat himself down, and began to wet the knife softly on the stone, still muttering, mumbling, ejaculating. The winds sighed around the lonely place, the mysterious voices of the night floated by out of the distances, the shining eyes of the venturesome mice and rats peered out at the old man from cracks and coverts. But he went on with his work, rapt, absorbed, 
and noted none of these things. At long intervals he drew his thumb along the edge of the knife, and nodded his face with satisfaction. "'It grows sharper,' he said. "'Yes, it grows sharper.' He took no note of the light of time, but worked tranquilly on, entertaining himself with his thoughts, which broke out occasionally in articulate speech. "'His father wrought us evil. He destroyed us, and is gone down into the eternal fires. Yes, down into the eternal fires. He escaped us, but it was God's will. Yes, it was God's will. We must not repine. But he hath not escaped the fires.' No, he hath not escaped the fires, the consuming, unpitying, remorseless fires, and they are everlasting. And so he wrought, and still wrought, mumbling, chuckling a low, rasping chuckle at times, and at times breaking again into words, It was his father that did it all. I am but an archangel, but for him I should be Pope. The king stirred. The hermit sprang noiselessly to the bedside, and went down upon his knees, bending over the prostrate form, with his knife uplifted. The boy stirred again. His eyes came open for an instant, but there was no speculation in them. They saw nothing. The next moment his tranquil breathing showed that his sleep was sound once more. The hermit watched and listened for a time, keeping his position and scarcely breathing. Then he slowly lowered his arm, and presently crept away, saying, it is long past midnight. It is not best that he should cry out, lest by accident some one be passing. He glided about his hovel, gathering a rag here, a thong there, and another one yonder. Then he returned, and by careful and gentle handling he managed to tie the king's ankles together without waking him. Next he essayed to tie the wrists. He made several attempts to cross them, but the boy always drew one hand or the other away, just as the cord was ready to be applied. But at last, when the archangel was almost ready to despair, the boy crossed his hands himself, and the next moment they were bound. Now a bandage was passed under the sleeper's chin and brought up over his head and tied fast, and so softly, so gradually, and so deftly were the knots drawn together and compacted that the boy slept peacefully through it all, without stirring. End of chapter 20 Chapter 21 Hendon to the Rescue The old man glided away, stooping stealthily, cat-like, and brought the low bench. He seated himself upon it, half his body in the dim and flickering light, and the other half in shadow, and so, with his craving eyes bent upon the slumbering boy, he kept his patient vigil there, heedless of the drift of time, and softly wetted his knife, and mumbled and chuckled, and in aspect and attitude he resembled nothing so much as a grisly monstrous spider, gloating over some hapless insect that lay bound and helpless in his web. After a long while the old man, who was still gazing, yet not seeing, his mind having settled into a dreamy abstraction, observed on a sudden that the boy's eyes were open, wide open, and staring, staring up in frozen horror at the knife. The smile of a gratified devil crept over the old man's face, and he said, without changing his attitude or his occupation, 
son of Henry the Eighth, hast thou prayed? The boy struggled helplessly in his bonds, and at the same time forced a smothered sound through his closed jaws, which the hermit chose to interpret as an affirmative answer to his question. Then pray again, pray the prayer for the dying. A shudder shook the boy's frame, and his face blenched. Then he struggled again to free himself, turning and twisting himself this way and that, tugging frantically, fiercely, desperately, but uselessly, to burst his fetters. And all the while the old ogre smiled down upon him, and nodded his head, and placidly wetted his knife, mumbling from time to time, "'The moments are precious. They are few and precious. Pray the prayer for the dying.' The boy uttered a despairing groan, and ceased from his struggles, panting. The tears came, then, and trickled, one after the other, down his face. But this piteous sight wrought no softening effect upon the savage old man. The dawn was coming now. The hermit observed it, and spoke up sharply, with a touch of nervous apprehension in his voice. "'I may not indulge this ecstasy longer. The night is already gone. It seems but a moment, only a moment. Would it had endured a year! Seed of the church's spoiler! Close thy perishing eyes, and thou fearest to look upon—' The rest was lost in inarticulate mutterings. The old man sunk upon his knees, his knife in his hand, and bent himself over the moaning boy. Hark! There was a sound of voices near the cabin. The knife dropped from the hermit's hand. He cast a sheepskin over the boy, and started up trembling. The sounds increased, and presently the voices became rough and angry. Then came blows, and cries for help, then a clatter of swift footsteps, retreating. Immediately came a succession of thundering knocks upon the cabin door, followed by, "'Hello! Open! And dispatch in the name of all the devils!' Oh, this was the blessedest sound that had ever made music in the king's ears, for it was Miles Hendon's voice. The hermit, grinding his teeth in impotent rage, moved swiftly out of the bedchamber, closing the door behind him. And straightway the king heard a talk, to this effect, proceeding from the chapel. "'Homage and greeting, reverend sir! Where is the boy? My boy!' "'What boy, friend? What boy? Lie me no lies, sir priest! Play me no deceptions! I am not in the humour for it!' Near to this place I caught the scoundrels who I judged did steal him from me, and I made them confess. They said he was at large again, and they had tracked him to your door. They showed me his very footprints. Now palter no more, for look you, holy sir, and thou produce him not. Where is the boy? Oh, good sir, peradventure you mean the ragged regal vagrant that tarried here the night. If such as you take interest in such as he, know then that I have sent him of an errand. He will be back anon. How soon, how soon! Come, waste not the time. Cannot I overtake him? How soon will he be back? Thou needst not stir. He will return quickly. So be it, then. I will try to wait. But stop! You sent him of an errand? You? Verily this is a lie. He would not go. He would pull thy old beard, and thou didst offer him such an insolence. Thou hast lied, friend. Thou hast surely lied. He would not go for thee, nor for any man. For any man, no, haply. But I am not a man. What? Now, of God's name, what art thou, then? It is a secret. Mark thou reveal it not. I am an archangel. 
There was a tremendous ejaculation from Miles Hendon, not altogether unprofane, followed by, "'This doth well and truly account for his complacence. Right well I knew he would budge nor hand nor foot in the menial service of any mortal. But, Lord, even a king must obey when an archangel gives the word a command. Let me—' Shh! What noise was that?' All this while the little king had been yonder, alternately quaking with terror and trembling with hope. And all the while, too, he had thrown all the strength he could into his anguished moanings, constantly expecting them to reach Hendon's ear, but always realizing with bitterness that they failed, or at least made no impression. So this last remark of his servant came as comes a reviving breath from fresh fields to the dying, and he exerted himself once more, and with all his energy, just as the hermit was saying, "'Noise! I heard only the wind!' "'Maybe it was. Yes, doubtless that was it.' I have been hearing it faintly all the— There it is again! It is not the wind! What an odd sound! Come, we will hunt it out!" Now the king's joy was nearly insupportable. His tired lungs did their utmost, and hopefully too, but the sealed jaws and the muffling sheepskin sadly crippled the effort. Then the poor fellow's heart sank to hear the hermit say, "'Ah! It came from without! I think from the copse yonder! Come, I will lead the way!' The king heard the two pass out, talking, heard their footsteps die quickly away. Then he was alone with a boding, brooding, awful silence. It seemed an age till he heard the steps and voices approaching again, and this time he heard an added sound—the trampling of hoofs, apparently. Then he heard Hendon say, "'I will not wait longer. I cannot wait longer. He has lost his way in this thick wood. Which direction took he? Quick, point it out to me.' He, uh, but wait, I will go with thee. Good, good, why, truly thou art better than thy looks. Mary, I do think there's not another archangel with so right a heart as thine. Wilt ride? Wilt take the wee donkey that's for my boy? Or wilt thou fork thy holy legs over this ill-conditioned slave of a mule that I have provided for myself, and had been cheated in, too, had he cost but the indifferent sum of a month's usury on a brass farthing, let to a tinker out of work? No, ride thy mule, and lead thine ass. I am sure on my own feet, and will walk. Then, Privy, mind the little beast for me, while I take my life in my hands, and make what success I may toward mounting the big one." Then followed a confusion of kicks, cuffs, tramplings, and plungings, accompanied by a thunderous intermingling of volleyed curses, and finally a bitter apostrophe to the mule, which must have broken its spirit for hostilities seemed to cease from that moment. With unutterable misery the fettered little king heard the voices and footsteps fade away and die out. All hope forsook him now, for the moment, and a dull despair settled down upon his heart. "'My only friend is deceived and got rid of,' he said. "'The hermit will return, and—' he finished with a gasp and at once fell to struggling so frantically with his bonds again that he shook off the smothering sheepskin. And now he heard the door open. The sound chilled him to the marrow. Already he seemed to feel the knife at his throat. Horror made him close his eyes. Horror made him open them again. And before him stood John Canty and Hugo. He would have said, Thank God, if his jaws had been free. A moment or two later his limbs were at liberty, and his captors, each gripping him by an arm, were hurrying him with all speed through the forest. End of chapter 21